1: Folks, welcome again uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. And we get to talk with some really interesting people. Uh, We get on the air uh, because of Alan Dempsey's engineering skills. And Andrew Herdliska produces the show for us. Leslie Montgomery is with us from Boise, Idaho. We're going to talk about her new book, The Faith of Mike Pence, Vice President of the United States. Leslie, welcome. How are you?
2: I'm fine. Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
1: Well, I, I'm curious, Leslie, how did this book come about?
2: Well, it's a really interesting story. In the summer of 2017, after taking a writing sabbatical as my kids were getting ready to start school again, I prayed and asked the Lord, to give me direction on a book that he would want me to write. And two weeks later, I had a dream that he wanted me to write The Faith of Mike Pence. Mm. It's really interesting, because uh, after I wrote The Faith of Condoleezza Rice, I had a publisher approach me and ask me to write the faith-based biography of another political figure. And as I dove into that project, I got about two months in, and there was absolutely no faith to write about and I had to go back to the publisher and say, hey, listen, if you want this book to be written, I'm not the one to write it. And so when I, when I woke up from this dream, I was like, really, Lord? A politician and faith, they don't you know, normally go together <laughs> well. And, but I got up and I started doing research on Mike Pence. And I, from, the, from the initial research, I, I could tell that he had some type of faith. And then I put together a list of people I'd like to interview, and I, I ended up doing about two and a half years' worth of research and almost mm. 60 interviews for this book. And I, I realized through those that he really is the real deal.
1: How has uh, Mr. Pence and his family responded to this book?
2: Well, I haven't talked with him directly or the second lady directly, but my understanding is through their Close associates who I've interviewed and talked with that they're very pleased with the book.
1: What surprised you most as you did your research?
2: You know, I I think a couple of things. One thing is is that he's a very humble man from those I talked to. But I one of the things that really surprised me is what a servant leader he is. From the very beginning of his days in Congress, he would he would everybody who came to work for him, he would pull them aside and he'd say, "Listen, we're about serving." the people, we're about servant leadership, and he would draw his strength, of course, from Christ, but he would always give his staff this analogy from the Bible about how Jesus would wash the feet of the disciples, and he'd say, that's what we're about. And one of the people I interviewed talked about how one time there were demonstrators out front um, protesting, and he went out and he took them, he did, not his staff, he went out and took them donuts and coffee, and they were like, why are you doing this? And he said, you know, you guys have a right to be out here protesting, but I thought, you know, we could be friendly about it, and so that's the that's Mike Pence, and he would go in, and anybody could come into his office at any time, and they would they would do whatever he could for them. He would also, you know, if he heard about constituents in his area who had lost a family member or who had some kind of tragedy in his life. He would make a point to go to their home or to call them and and make sure he told them, "Hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, what can I do to help you?" He was always he, he always considered his you know his constituents as part of his family, and so he's always looking for ways to serve people. And he was an example to that of that personally. And he would encourage those around him who worked for him to do the same. That was really incredible to me. Another thing that, he, that I learned about him was how he had a reputation for being able to share his conservative views in, with, with people whose policies and beliefs and re- religious views were on the other side of the spectrum without being combative or derogatory or demeaning towards the person's value. So he, all throughout his career, he's always been able to work with people on the other side of the, of the aisle without being negative towards them. And that was really gave me respect towards him.
1: How would you describe the relationship between Donald Trump and Mike Pence?
2: Well, I I think that I would say you know that he's gotten a lot of criticism even from from Christians about you know how could a, a godly Christian man work with a man who's more known for gambling endeavors and you know women you know having numerous women in his life than someone, you know, who's not a godly man. And I think we have to remember that, you know, there's a lot of biblical examples in the Bible of godly men who advised ungodly men. And I'm not saying President Trump is an ungodly man. I've never talked with him personally. I've never interviewed those people around him, so I don't feel like I can, you know, comment on him or his faith or where he's at spiritually. But um, I think that the relationship there is one of trust. I think Donald Trump uh, trusts Mike Pence. I think that he has spiritually advised him and encouraged him in his faith. My understanding from those who work with them is that um, uh, Donald Trump has asked for um, spiritual insight from from Mike Pence. That they have implemented Bible studies in the West Wing. That um, the the president has um, encouraged. Uh, mike pence to talk to him about scriptures he's asked a lot of really good questions like well what does the scripture mean and how does that really fit into my life you know and so i i think from what I, my understanding is is that president is on a on the road spiritually and that there are definitely people in his life including the vice president who are encouraging him along the
1: way what uh, what do you write about mrs pence
2: Mrs. Pence, there, I'll just say there is no Mike Pence without Karen Pence. They are the incredible. They are they are the epitome of the of a rock um, of the scripture of of the three corded strand with Jesus from the beginning. Mike Pence always knew what he wanted in a woman. He did not want a, a, a wife who would just stay home and raise the kids and not be a part of of his career or of his life. He wanted a woman who was a team player and um, in his life, in his marriage, in raising the kids. And he wanted to be a part of her life as well. And so when he met Karen, Karen, in her own right, was very successful, um, not just in she was valedictorian of her school. She was involved in ver- in several academic Endeavors in high school, in college, she succeeded. She got her master's degree in um, art. She she was a pilot. <clears throat> Excuse me. She she was very successful on her own. When they met, um, it was instant. They, they both said it was instant love at first sight, and they they balanced each other very well. And um, he told her early on in their dating, he said, you know. Um, I have an ambition that in my 50s, I'd like to run for Congress. And she said that she really didn't understand really what that would look like. But she said, okay, you know, I will support that. And um, they jumped on board. And from the beginning of their marriage, they were a team. And that's not to say that they haven't had their own ups and downs in in their marriage, but they have worked hard to be a part of each other's Relationship, and she has literally been the rock. She, he, Mike Pence led her to a personal relationship with Christ. She was raised in the Catholic Church, and she has. He calls her the prayer warrior of the family. She uh, has been very instrumental in raising her children unto Christ. Of course, he's been gone a lot in his career, as you can imagine, and she is. Um, she has. She's. She's an incredible mother. She's kept journals that she's written to her kids over the years, um, encouraging them in Christ. She uh, is a wonderful leader within herself. She has started numerous uh, nonprofits and raised money over the years. She's an artist. She's um, she, she's just an incredible woman of God, an incredible artist, incredible writer. She's she's a wonderful woman and and a great support to her husband. You know, she and the. Vice President, have been married over 35 years, which is more than two-thirds
1: of Americans. My guest is Leslie Montgomery from Boise, Idaho. The name of her book, and it's a good read, folks, it's called The Faith of Mike Pence, forward by Mike Huckabee. And uh, we've got another segment with Leslie Montgomery uh, to talk more about this book, The Faith of Mike Pence. Uh, so stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, It's 94.9 FM, AM 950, the word in Orlando. Just set your dial right there all day long. Uh, We'll be right back. Leslie Montgomery, writer for Focus on the Family for more than 20 years. She's in Boise, Idaho. Her new book is called The Faith of Mike Pence. By the way, Leslie, uh, what did your years at Focus on the Family mean to you?
2: You know, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Dobson, and I was writing for folks in the family during that time. I wrote for several of their ministries under the umbrella of Focus on the Family, and um, it was wonderful to be a part of that ministry and get that opportunity. Uh, You know, it just was very fulfilling to feel like I was a part in some little way of what they were doing, keeping families together.
1: Leslie, before we move on again, uh, I am a big Condi Rice fan.
2: <laughs> She's a wonderful, wonderful woman,
1: and, and I know you uh, wrote that book about her. Uh, what can you tell me about Condoleezza Rice that I don't know?
2: I'll tell you. If you want to, if if you want a good outline on how to be a godly parent, you've got to read the faith of Condoleezza Rice because she comes from a long line of godly. Um, godly, a, a good godly heritage. Um, her father was a Presbyterian pastor. He was also an educator. Her mother was an educator. They specifically only had one child so that they could just pour into her. They, As they raised her, they never raised her with the intention of, oh, she's four years old, she can only do this, as every four-year-old can they said, you know what, we're going to give her every opportunity that we have. And so they exposed her to, you know, major, you know, civil rights leaders. So if they were meeting with Fred Shuttlesworth. she got to meet with Fred Shuttlesworth, And they took her to, um, you know, different marches. She was born and raised right in the middle of the civil rights movement. So she was in what they called at that time, Bombingham, Alabama. and. Um, she, she experienced a, a lot of the heat that was going on at that time. And her parents uh, deliberately, if, she, if they saw that she had an interest in piano, they said, hey, you learn how to play, and we'll buy you a piano. That weekend, she learned how to play. Mm. They bought her a piano. She, you know, she went ice skating. They said, you learn how to ice skate, we'll pour into you. She learned how to ice skate. They took her to different meets, and she learned how to, you know. And so every time she saw interest... Her father. One of the interesting thing is, is her father. Like I said, was a Presbyterian minister. He encouraged her to debate with him the Bible mm. because he wanted her faith to be her own. He didn't want her to believe just because he told her to believe. And so it's just it's just an incredible story of how God works in her life throughout the years. And she accidentally ends up in. A class in college, you say it accidentally. You know how God works. You know, in a class with Madeline O'Hare's father, and and he takes her under his wing and teaches her Soviet, you know, studies. And so it's just this incredible story. And she really is a woman of God and a woman of strength. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful woman empowering book for for women to read, for parents to read. I I I, re- I wrote that book right before I had my last two children. And I went into having my last two kids, going, "I want a parent that way."
1: What kind of a president would she make?
2: Oh, she would be an incredible pre- president. I would love to see uh, Condi and uh, Pence run together.
1: Oh boy, uh, who, who would be uh, who would be the president?
2: Um, I <laughs> I'm not going to go there.
1: <laughs> either one.
2: I think either one would be a great would be a great president. I really do. But Condi specifically said she's not going to run. She said, you know, she did leave open maybe someday I would run for governor of California, but I don't even think that's going to happen. She was after she had served in two administrations, she said, you know, I'm looking back to go I'm looking forward to going back to normal life.
1: Isn't she an educator at heart?
2: Yes, she really is. And she she and her father started a nonprofit for kids who don't have the opportunity to have, you know, a college education. So she really wanted to get back to Palo Alto, California, where she's from and where she taught at Stanford, and just really pour into that, you know, that nonprofit and and go back to teaching. So it was really her heart, and that's what she's done, and and her stepmom lives there. And so she's just really been a part of going back to normal life.
1: Can you um, look ahead five years, Leslie? And imagine Mike Pence uh, in the White House r- running the country.
2: Absolutely, and you know one of the things when I got done writing this book is I, you know, from the very beginning of his career, all the way through to today. So we, so he he became a congressman in 2000, and it's you know it's been almost 20 years now. He he went into it asking his friends in his his accountability group pray that my yes will be yes and my no will be no he's never flip-flopped on issues he's always kept to what he believes always biblical principles so if he became president I have the faith that he that he would stand by what he says so i would i trust him I trust him so if he was my president I would trust that he would do the things that he's promised I trust that he would stand by biblical pr- principles so I would have all the faith in the world that he would do what God is calling him to do and stand by biblical principles. And so um, I would trust that he was doing what God, what the Bible tells him to do. So
1: Let, Leslie, that gives me a lot of hope. Leslie, tell me some of the memorable people that you interviewed for this book.
2: Well, we, we got comments and interviews from people like, James Dobson, Franklin Graham, Ralph Reed, um, some of the people who participated in the book include um, like people like David McIntosh, who was uh, a congressman in Indiana, uh, Apollo Guerrillo. Mal- I'm, I'm going to pronounce his last name. I'm going to butcher it hor- horribly. Maldonado, Although you probably know him, he's, he's from Florida. Yes. Ken Blackwell. Um, Dr. Richard Land, uh, Gary Varvel, who was a cartoonist for the Indiana Star for many years, Cecil Bahannon, who's a professor of economics at Ball State University. Um, I mean, it's endless, (laughs) endless. Dr. Jay Strack, um, who is the president of Student Leadership University, Um, Doug Deason, who is the president of um, Capital Services and advisor for prison reform. Uh, Let's see. Jack Graham, who is the uh, oh. pastor of Pre- uh, Prestonwood Baptist Church and PowerPoint Ministries, Ed Simcox, who's a former Secretary of State for Indiana. I mean, it just it uh, Bill Smith, who's his former Chief of Staff. I mean, it just goes on and on and <laughs> on. We've just really been blessed. God just opened doors and continued to open doors, and we've had um, Rex Elsass, who's just been instrumental in this process, who is Mike's. Um, a uh, media strategist who's opened many, many doors for us. And, and uh, it, you know, God, from the very beginning, you know, of course, I believe he told me to write this book, and he's opened doors to the White House and continues to go before us and open doors with the book.
1: Leslie Montgomery is the author of The Faith of Mike Pence. She's with us from Boise, Idaho. Leslie, tell me about the Pence's children.
2: Well, they have three children. They have Michael and Aud- and um and then they have Charlotte and then they have Audrey. And Michael's already married. And uh, Charlotte just got engaged the other day. And Audrey has been engaged for about four or five months.
1: Tell me about. Michael
2: is a pilot. Is he? And, yeah. Yeah. She, as you know, Charlotte, you probably heard about Charlotte. She's most vocal out of all the kids. She's written a couple of books with her mom about their bunny Marlo, and um. And, uh, and Audrey's been studying overseas.
1: So they have, well, uh, yep. uh, so the, do the Pences have uh grandchildren yet?
2: No grandchildren yet, but I think that they're, they're praying really hard for that.
1: <laughs> yes. That's, that's fascinating. What's next, Leslie, you, you did Condi, you did Mike Pence. Is there somebody else that would be interesting to read about?
2: Well, I'm, I'm praying about what we're working on next. Um, I have, I'm. I think what we're going to do is my memoir will be coming out in the fall of next year, and then uh, we're praying about another project. So we'll see what God. We'll see what God does.
1: Leslie, when did you realize you had some writing skills?
2: You know, my mom says that I was born with a pen in one hand and a phone in the other. And even as a little girl, I think as as soon as I was able to write words, I, I literally was writing screenplays and and poems and books and whatever I could write, writing on myself, writing on walls, writing on my shoes. And so I always feel like I was writing. The first time I ever got published, I was in seventh grade.
1: Really? And
2: yeah, and so I just kind of was always writing. When I started writing professionally was probably in 1996, and uh, and and then I became a Christian and uh, a believer in 1992, and then in 1996 I started writing for Focus on the Family, and and um, different outlets, and it just seemed like God just blew open that door, and everything I wrote just got published, it, you know, which never happened, and um, yeah, it just went from there. Groom, 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 groom,
1: groom. What do you like to read?
2: I'm going to sound like a real nerd, but I like to read commentaries.
1: <laughs> Good, w- w- Old Testament commentaries, New Testament commentaries. I mean, uh, both.
2: Both. My favorite is by Warren Wisterby, who just passed away recently.
1: Warren Wiersbe. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, let me, so, Leslie. Let me just tell you this. Ah, uh, just before he passed away at age eighty-nine, and uh, Warren Wiersbe was a good friend of mine for many, many years. Mm. And he wrote he wrote those wonderful little books, the B series. Anyway, I he,
2: have them. Yes, you're right,
1: Leslie. Here's here's what I can tell you: uh, the Warren Wiersbe Study Bible uh, came out just a few months ago, mm. and it is uh, Thomas Nelson put it out. It is just there are study Bibles. And then there is the Warren Wearsby Study Bible.
2: I didn't know about that. I'm going to have to get it.
1: Oh, it, you you will be enriched. You will just be amazed at at how they've done this. I think I think they took all the best of those B series books and then wove them together here. Uh, you know, uh, through each book of the Bible, it's a big, thick commentary. You know, of a book of the Bible. It's a it's it's huge, but boy. Uh you will be absolutely uh overwhelmed. you'll be amazed
2: I did some research one time and found his phone number and was bold enough to contact him and ask him some biblical questions and He actually took my call and I was just so blessed by talking to him. We talked for about forty five minutes and it was just
1: isn't was that just incredible? Well, that sounds just like him he uh He pastored the Moody Church in Chicago. Uh, for a number of years. I was the general manager of the Bulls at the time in Chicago wow. and, and spent uh, three years under his ministry at uh, at Moody Church. And uh, then he went to Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, did uh, back to the Bible for years and stayed in Lincoln, uh, continued to write there. But I, I've got to tell you a quick story. I was visiting him a few years back. We were going to go out to lunch and he said, "Now, if you need a restroom, he said, just go down the hall there. And he said, there are three bathrooms. Uh, he said, I don't know who designed this house. He said, but there are three bathrooms, right in order, right down the hall. He said, we call them First John, Second John, and Third John." <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a, as only Warren Wearsby could do it, you know he he had a he had a very very uh, subtle uh, sense of humor, and uh, he was a delight. He he missed his ninetieth birthday by two weeks.
2: I would have loved to meet him, but I will one day in eternity. I will.
1: Yeah, you'll you'll meet him up there, and you'll have all sorts of questions for him. But in the meantime, you get to dig in. To,
2: yes, I will, and I will definitely buy that Bible today. To the Warren Warren
1: Wearsby study Bible. Now, here's one other little tidbit, if you like these things. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, uh, another uh, one of my favorites, his his study Bible is coming out November 1 of this year. Mm -hmm. So make note of that. Okay. Uh, Can't wait uh, to see Tony Evans' study Bible. It'll be out uh, uh, November 1 of this year. Anyway, Leslie... Congratulations on the! First, I read the Condi Rice book. Oh, you did! Oh, yes, loved it. And now the faith of Mike Pence, wonderful read, and I'm so glad uh, that you and I got a chance to visit here. Uh, con- continued success to you, Les.
2: Thank you. Can I uh, can I push my book real quick? Can I say something?
1: Oh, please, yes.
2: Okay, so the book's not available to the public until August 6th, mm-hmm. but. If people want to purchase the book, they can go to my website right now, which is authorlesleymontgomery.com, and I will send them a signed copy, priority mail, and they'll get it in two days.
1: Wow, what an offer. Fabulous. Folks, we got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Leslie Montgomery, our guest in that first segment, talking about her book, The Faith of Mike Pence. Leslie was in Boise, Idaho. We go from Boise, Idaho to the Boston, Massachusetts area, and uh, that's where Patricia Batten resides. Uh, Her book is out. It's an interesting read. It's called Parenting by Faith, What Jesus Said to Parents. Welcome, Patricia. How are you?
3: I'm well, Pat. Thanks for having me.
1: So what did Jesus say to parents?
3: Oh, gosh, he said a lot to parents. I was surprised how much he said to parents. But, uh, yeah, they came to him in desperate situations, and uh, he had uh, different words for every situation.
1: Well, your book breaks down into seven topics, seven chapters. And I want uh, want to dive into this and, and get your thoughts. So let's start with your first topic feasting on crumbs of mercy Matthew 15 21 through28 what does that mean what what's going on here?
3: okay so this is one of my favorite passages in scripture now that I've studied it um, so what I did in the book uh, was I looked at all of the interactions or the majority of the interactions between Jesus and parents so truly what you know what he said to them. So in this one, in Matthew 15, we meet a woman, a Syrophoenician woman. So she's a non-Jew, and she cries out to Jesus for mercy. She's begging him for mercy. And the disciples are around Jesus, and they say to her, you know, Jesus doesn't say anything. And it's it's quite a shocking story. You think, oh, why, why don't you speak up here? Instead, he lets his disciples do the talking, and they say, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. So you've got this woman, this father. She's also an outsider. She's not Jewish, so she's not an approved recipient of God's mercy, like, you know, the Jewish people. And she's also considered an enemy, because Matthew actually refers to her as a Canaanite woman. So he's just conjuring up these images of the past. And it's this woman who wants mercy, and they say, no. No, send her away. And Jesus kind of plays off of the disciples, and he says to her, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel," basically meaning, you know, I more sent to the, you know, the, the Jewish people. But you have to wonder why on earth is Jesus walking through her neighborhood? You know, like what is he doing there? And um, then she gets down on her knees and she stops the flow of traffic and she begs him for mercy again and she's got this gaggle of men standing around her you know they clearly do not care for her i don't think she should have any mercy from the lord at all but she persists in her journey to jesus because she knows that he is the only one who can give her the mercy that she needs and i love this passage because jesus is really pushing her in fact some people say You know, it it sounds like he's insulting her because he ends up talking about uh, dogs, uh, which was an insult back in that time. And uh, one scholar, Kenneth Bailey, says, you know what? What he's doing there uh, when he uses the word dog is he's demonstrating what his disciples' prejudices look like when they're actually acted upon. He's saying, okay, this is how you view this woman. Are you really comfortable with this? Are you really comfortable denying this woman, this mother, this outsider, this supposed enemy, mercy? And uh, he's teaching his disciples, but he's also testing her faith. It would have been so much easier if he just said, yeah, sure. Mercy. But he he really pushes her. And I feel like as a parent, um, we know what that feels like. My uh, My little guy plays cello and I use that term loosely when I say play, but we have a cello in the home, and I've gotten accustomed to tuning the cello, and I know very little about string instruments, but I have tightened this cello with the big tuning pegs on top um, far too much. I've turned these pegs, and I've snapped strings. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think as parents, when we're dealing with a difficult situation with our kids, we feel like we're about to snap, we're about to break. And I feel like Jesus is doing that with this woman. He's pushing her. He's stretching her. He's tightening her face is what he does, but never to the point where she snaps. But it gets so close. And in the end, he tells her she has great faith. She's stuck with him. She's stuck with him, and her faith grew. So that, that is one of my favorite stories. It's an interesting one. It's a bit strange, but I love what Jesus does there. And I think sometimes he does that to parents. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough lesson to learn, but it's a good one.
1: Now I want you, uh, Pat, to move to the second topic. Parenting without fear, it's called. Mark 5, 21 through 43.
3: All right. Parenting without fear. So this is a familiar story to people. This is the story of Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. Of course, Jairus is a parent, and uh, he comes running to Jesus as well. Help me, make. my daughter is uh, dying. And Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll go home with you. And, of course, they're interrupted by this woman with the issue of blood. And you can't help but think, as a parent, what that must have felt like for him. Um, He had risked quite a bit in even going to Jesus, because Jairus is a religious leader, and at that point in time, the religious leaders had really said, you know what, anybody who's who's with Jesus is uh, is against us, so, so, you know, watch out. They had accused Jesus of uh, working with the devil. So Jairus is taking a risk, and even even going to Jesus, but he does because again he knows that Jesus is the only one who can give him the help he needs. And uh, he gets to Jesus, and then all of a sudden everything stops. It's like this big delay, and you can just picture Jairus thinking, "Oh, come on, Lord, what's going on? Keep it moving, keep it moving!" But there are huge crowds, and and uh, nothing. Nothing happens for Jairus. He has to wait while this woman is healed and while her faith um, is growing and being tested. And then in the middle of that, a uh, few men back from Jairus' home come up to him and say, don't bother the teacher anymore because your daughter is dead. And you can just imagine what Jairus feels at that moment. You know, does he run away? Um Does he leave angry at Jesus? You know, what happened? And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. And in so many ways, I think that's a ridiculous thing to say to someone whose greatest fear has just come true. Um, You know, don't be afraid. But that's exactly what he tells uh, Jairus. And Jairus sticks with him. He hands his fears right over to Jesus and trusts that even in the worst of circumstances, um, God is greater than our fears. And uh, that that's a pretty neat story, too. It's a familiar one, but you really see it from the eyes of, uh, I think, Jairus as a parent.
1: Patricia so Batten. That's the second chapter. Yeah. Pat, Pat Batten is with us from uh, the Boston area. Her book, Parenting by Faith. Uh, let's get to the third topic here, Patricia. I want you to talk about everything is possible with God. Mark nine, 14 through 32.
3: Okay, great. So in this passage, we've got, this is a healing of a boy with an evil spirit. And again, you have a dad who has uh, come to Jesus and he says, um, to Jesus, you know, I, he says, I asked your disciples to drive out the um, but they couldn't do it. And he basically asked Jesus, you know, can, can you do something about this? Can you? Uh, you know, if, if, if you are able to do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, everything is possible for him who believe. And the thing about this passage and so many of these passages is that it's almost less about the child who the parent is bringing to Jesus or talking um, about to Jesus. And it's so much more about the parent. God is doing a major work in the parent and he's doing a major work um, in the life of this father really taking his belief that is so, so fragile, you know, it's an if you can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure, Jesus, but help me believe, he says, help me overcome my unbelief. And sometimes as parents, uh, we feel the same way. I mean, our our faith isn't always totally firm. I mean, it's fragile. And sometimes it's okay to say, Jesus, help me. Help my unbelief. Like, like I, I, I want to know you can do this. I, I do trust you, but sometimes I waver. And, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't turn his back on that kind of faith. He doesn't turn his back on this man. He meets him exactly where he is. And, uh, yeah, it's a great story. One of the other things I loved about looking at these interactions were that there were um, moms coming to Jesus and there were dads coming to Jesus. Um both of them, so uh, Jesus he really does he cares about parents
1: now, uh, Patricia, let's get to the fourth topic. it's called Faith to the finish line john four forty three to fifty four
3: okay, so this passage we've got again, we have another dad, and um this is the healing of the official's son. Mm-hmm. and this dad uh runs quite a distance to get to jesus um it's It's almost the length of a marathon mm. um it, it takes him more than a day He's probably going a shelter somewhere overnight uh to reach jesus and I think you know that's what we do for a parent uh, for our kids. Parents know You would do anything. Like, you run the distance um, when they're going through something difficult, and it's absolutely exhausting um, as a parent. Maybe there are parents who have been struggling with IEPs for their children or, you know, really trying to work through the school system or there's some medical issue or something socially that's not going right. The parents know what it's like to really run run the distance. And when this father gets there, you know, arrives in, in front of Jesus, he doesn't get a, a cold glass of water from the well. Um, you know, nothing like that. He comes to Jesus and he begs him to come and heal his son. And Jesus says to him, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, will never believe and I read that and I think oh my goodness that's not what I want to hear of the parent, you know what are you doing but Jesus is also talking to uh, the crowd around him and again this parent sticks with him he doesn't want to see a a, a wonder he, he wants his his child back the child that he left that he he wipes the sweat from his forehead uh, you know, felt the fever on his cheeks. Um, he needs Jesus to do a miracle. And Jesus just says to him, you may go, your son will live. And I think being in that position and having to trust Jesus without seeing it must have been very difficult because his son's back home. And this guy has another day and a half journey. So he has got to trust Jesus right then and there, turn around and walk the distance home and trust that Jesus does what he says he'll do. And that's huge, not just for parents, for everybody to believe that when God says he'll do something, he does it, that God does what he says. And of course, this father finds it just as Jesus said. But
1: again, what another test of faith. Imagine what those hours were like walking back home. My guest is Patricia Batten. Uh, she is uh, situated uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and she's talking to us about her new book, Parenting by Faith. When we come back, uh, we've got to take a break for these messages. The first topic back for Patricia, Parenting Without Tears. It comes from Luke 7, 11 through 17. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Patricia we'll be right Batten back. is our guest. Her book is called Parenting by Faith. And Patricia, as advertised, uh, talk to us about Parenting Without Tears.
3: Sure. Yeah, that's Chapter 5 in the book. It comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And this story is only found in this Gospel. Jesus raises a widow's son. And I love this story because uh, Jesus is... uh, This woman actually never cries out for Jesus. And the other passages, you've got moms and dads going to Jesus, rushing to Jesus, saying, help me with my child. And this woman never says that because her son is already dead. In fact, they are on the way to uh, bury him in the in the tomb. There's a funeral procession, and it's likely that it's the same tomb that her husband was laid in. So she has walked this road before. She's been down this journey. She's a widow. She's all alone now. That means so much, never mind emotionally, but how, how is she going to survive uh, in, in that world? And Jesus hears her from a distance. He hears for cry, um, and the word used for cry there, it's not a little whimper. This is a full-throttle sob, almost an uncontrolled sob. He hears that cry, and he sees her heart, and Jesus comes to her. And by doing so, he's making himself unclean, because here he's by... Uh, a, a deceased person, he actually touches this dead boy, uh, which would make him unclean. And he tells the mother, before he does this, he says, don't, don't cry. And in some ways, you think, what a heartless thing to say. What <laughs> of a funeral procession. Don't cry. But the, the uh, idea behind that is is, don't you never have to cry this way again. In an uncontrollable way, you never have to cry as if there is no hope. And I think as parents, Jesus is saying the same thing. We don't have to cry that way because Jesus' reach is beyond the grave. So we never have to cry as if things are completely hopeless. Um, even when things don't work out the way we had hoped here on earth, Jesus' reach is far beyond that beyond the grave and there's a promise of eternal life so yes there are tears the shed but a hopeless God he says we don't have to do that anymore
1: Pat tell us about the sixth topic service is greatness Matthew 20 20 through 28
3: sure in this passage um is a familiar passage, I think. This is the mother of James and John, so we're talking about adult children here. And she wants greatness for her kids. What parent doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. And she approaches Jesus, the mother's request, and she asks, she says, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And these, of course, are the most important places uh, of honor. Uh, and position, and uh, you know she believes Jesus' kingdom is coming, he will be reigning, and she wants James and John to have great spots, and you can't blame her for that, but she's really asking the wrong question. He tells her, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking, and I imagine what Jesus said, those words, plagued this mother when she was at the foot of the cross, when Jesus was being crucified. Those words must have echoed through her mind, you don't know what you're asking, because at that point, the right and the left of Jesus was a death sentence. And sometimes I think as parents, we don't know what we're asking. We want greatness for our kids because that's what our culture says. That's what our world says. And we start that very early on with our kids, um, right from the get-go. Um, you know, we want them to look great with the best outfits, have the, have the greatest stroller and all that, and as they grow up, um, greatness on the soccer field, greatness on the football field, uh, greatness academically, greatness so- socially everything that's important around us, but kingdom values are upside down. And God says, greatness, in my eyes, is service. So I think having that perspective as parents will help us to remember, you know, we're raising our kids to be servants, um, to love others, to love God, and that that is the primary value. That is what's most important.
1: Now, Patricia, it's time for you to talk to us about issues of the heart. John chapter 2, 1 through 11.
3: So in John chapter 2, we've got Jesus' first miracle. So this is the wedding at Cana. And Jesus is attending the wedding. He's with his disciples. And his mother is there as well. So this isn't too far from where he grew up in Nazareth. And, uh, you know, the families probably knew each other. Perhaps his mother Mary was uh, helping out with wedding preparations. We don't know exactly. But something important happens here. Not only is it Jesus' first miracle, but Jesus says something to his mother that uh, (laughs) sounds a bit shocking. He He says, uh, woman, why do you involve me? And the NIV translation, it says, dear woman. But a better translation, it it really is, woman, what does this have to do um, with me here? And what he's saying is that the relationship has changed, that he does not do things to to his mother's will, but according to his father's will in heaven. He's trying to show her that there is another relationship, that there is another parent, um, and, and this relationship goes back uh, farther than she could ever imagine from the beginning of time. And it's really his heavenly father's will that he has got to follow. But just thinking about Harry, how Mary must have taken those words and trying to understand how she heard them must have been so hard as as a parent. And I think so many of us go through that when our kids start to pull away. You know, they grow up and they're supposed to do that. But when we are not the primary um, force in their lives anymore, it's taken over by. A Pierre, or boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or maybe even a teacher or a mentor, and I think as a parent, it's uh, it's really difficult, but ultimately to know that our kids are in God's hands, and that has got to be their primary relationship, and that's what we're helping them to do uh, as we raise our
1: kids. Pat, what do you want uh, listeners to our chat uh, to take from our discussion?
3: I want them to see that Jesus spoke to parents, moms and dads, way back then. He cared about them uh, in ancient times when he walked on earth, and he cares about parents now. Um, And he has something to say to each one of us. It's not cookie-cutter advice, but he speaks to us exactly where we are in the situation we are in with our children. He hears the cries of our hearts, even when we cannot articulate them. But Jesus, he really does care about parents. And as we raise our kids, he is doing something or can do something amazing in us uh, if we allow him to do that.
1: Pat, I'm so glad we could visit. Uh, You have uh, explained this beautifully. Your book is fascinating to... uh parents of children of any age, and I'm really, really uh, appreciative of your time.
3: Thanks, Pat. It was so good to be with
1: you. Patricia Batten, our guest, uh, author of Parenting by Faith. Uh, We've got to wrap up uh, right after this. Just a reminder, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather every weekend uh, right at this time, and always so pleased when you're with us. Of course, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Uh, we'll be right back. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In that first segment, Leslie Montgomery was was with us talking about her book, The Faith of Mike Pence. And then Patricia Batten plugged in, and we heard her talking about her book, Parenting by Faith. I just want to tell you about my new book. It's out. Uh, it's called Character Carved in Stone. It's about 12 benches at a park trophy point on the campus of West point, And a different word carved into the end of each bench. Uh, we did a chapter on each one of those words. I think you'll find it uh, to be very, very interesting. Mike Krzyzewski, uh the coach at Duke, wrote the foreword, a West Point grad. And uh, you can go up to Amazon uh, to uh, check out all these books or head to Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. We'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando.